There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We're in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, right at the beginning of the chapter. And uh, we have... Uh, just to review very quickly, Matthew 1, Matthew 2. As you know, Matthew is uh, one of the 12 disciples. He was a tax collector. And this is the first gospel because it is a perfect bridge between the Jewish Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament, New Covenant scriptures that we know as Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the rest. Matthew's gospel is the most Jewish of the gospels. He ties in the Old Testament more than any of the others. So it's a perfect bridge between the two Testaments, Old Testament and New Testament. In chapter one, Matthew wants you to know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One, and that he's God's son. And so in chapter one, he gives the, the deepest credentials he can. First, for his manhood, Jesus's manhood, human nature. He gives us his genealogy, if you remember all those names. Uh, and to show you that he is a man, human, and that he's in the line of David, so he is um, eligible to be a king to sit on David's throne. But in the same chapter, he gives a second genealogy with a virgin birth, twice mentioned that it's he is the son of, in a sense, the Holy Spirit, the son of God. And then he goes so far as to quote Isaiah, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Two natures, fully God, fully man. That's just chapter one. Chapter two, we get a hint about what the reaction is going to be. Some worship. The first people to worship him are the Magi. And they come from the east. They're Gentiles in chapter 2. And they worship Jesus. But it doesn't take long in chapter 2 that we find out that there's some people that already hate him. And he's very young, like Herod, who wants him killed and slaughters some kids around the Bethlehem area to try to get Jesus. God warns Joseph and Mary in a dream, and they go to Egypt for a time. Um, Zacharias, um, let's see. So now we're in chapter three, which is the forerunner. And I don't mean a Toyota. I mean the forerunner, the person before the Messiah. Whenever there was a king or a dignitary that was going to come to an area, there was always a forerunner who was sort of a herald who would do two things, announce so-and-so, the great king, somebody is coming. But even before he would announce it, he would come to take inventory and clean up the town. I want this graffiti erased. I want these this cleared up. He would make the, the roads more smooth so that the king would have an easy passage in. John is that forerunner. He's not cleaning up graffiti. He's going to clean up hearts, souls, minds of the Jews. Got a hard job to do. So um, let's look at chapter three of the Gospel of Matthew, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, so I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, I can't hear you, but wave so I know you. I see an amen sign. Beautiful. Oh, I see Sam in Tennessee. How are you, Sam? Okay. Um, chapter one, uh, chapter three, sorry, verse one. In those days, and by the way, that's an odd phrase, may I say, because about 30 years has passed, maybe 29 years. 
When we left off with the Magi and Herod trying to kill the baby Jesus, Jesus was a toddler or maybe six months to a year, year and a half. A bunch of time has passed. Matthew's going to skip completely Jesus' childhood. The only story we know is when he was 12 and he, they went to the temple. Do you remember that? And he ends up teaching the religious experts and disappears from his family. And they're all kind of freaked out. Remember all that? He's about his father's business. Matthew skips all that and wants to bring, introduce you to an interesting character. Last thing before we start, I forgot to mention this. In the 1960s and 70s, I don't know, I don't know if it was in the 80s as well, but there was a guy named Cassius Clay who was a boxer. Anybody know who he is? My dad was a professional boxer. He thought Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, was the greatest boxer ever. I know there's people that disagree, whatever. Why are you mentioning him, Joe, at a Bible study? Because he was a, a genius at getting publicity, and he had a thing he always said. Do you remember? I am the greatest. Remember that? And maybe God humbled him. I, personally, I would never say I'm the greatest at anything. If you think about it, I'm going to show you tonight who Jesus points out as the greatest man that ever, or woman, that ever lived up to the time he speaks. But first, let's read the beginning of chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near or is at hand. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, now he's going to quote Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So let's stop there and digest those three, shall we? Okay, um, John the Baptist, we learn from uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, chapter 1, has a miraculous birth just like or similar to Jesus. He's not conceived of, of the Holy Spirit, but he's born to parents that are too old to have children. Zacharias, his dad, is a priest. Elizabeth, his mother, is in the priestly line. They are too old to have a child, and they miraculously are given a child. And he has the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist does, listen to this, from birth. You may remember that we talked about when Mary, when she finds out she's pregnant with the Holy Spirit, goes and visits her cousin, Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist. And Elizabeth says, when the mother of my Lord came in the room, the baby inside me just leapt for joy. Can you imagine what that felt like, ladies, right? Okay, so a miraculous birth. He is the forerunner of the Messiah we're about to see. John the ba Baptist is Jesus's second cousin because Mary and Elizabeth, John's mother, are first cousins. You with me? They lived in different areas, so they might not have seen much of each other. We don't know. Um, let's see. I want you to look at a couple of scriptures that talk about John the Baptist that will tie in this chapter. So keep your finger in Matthew and go one book to the left. Go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3 and verse 1. Or if you're Italian, it's Malachi. But anyway, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. 
Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Who spoke? The Lord Almighty. Whose messenger is he? And whose way is he preparing? The way before me. See the first sentence? And yet he's really preparing the way before Christ, who is, therefore, God. Now flip over, same book, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. One chapter over. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and terrible or dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. It always gives me chills that the Old Testament, which is the Jewish agreement, covenant between God and men, ends with the word, what's the last word in Malachi? The last word in the Old Testament is the word curse. Because if you try to keep the law, which is what the Old Testament is all about, and try to do everything perfect without sinning, you're still cursed because we have a sin nature. So this verse 5 of Malachi 4 talks about sending the prophet Elijah. So that's a prophet of the Old Testament, considered the greatest of the Old Testament prophets that lived before this was written. He was already dead when this was written. So are we talking reincarnation? No. Elijah went up to heaven, right? Elijah appear, appears with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So the question is, are you saying John is Elijah? And the answer is no. But he comes in the spirit and the power with a very, of Elijah with a very similar ministry we'll see in a second. One more verse I want you to see in the Old Testament, uh, way back, Isaiah 40. If you're not a page turner, that's okay. But you won't get an A if you don't turn to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 4 describes John the Baptist's ministry, the forerunner, the one becomes before the anointed one, the Messiah. Isaiah, so from the middle, find the middle of your whole Bible and you'll come to Isaiah or Psalms, Proverbs right in there. If you're at Psalms or Proverbs, take a right and you'll find Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 3, Isaiah 43, a voice of one calling in the wilderness or the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places made a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And not just the Jews, but all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. This is a prophecy about John preparing the way for the Lord God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. Now go back to Matthew chapter 3. Uh, let's see, do we want to go there now? Um, yeah, we might as well, before I forget, because at my age, you forget. Now go to Matthew chapter 11. All this flipping around in the Bible keeps you awake, whether you know it or not. Did you know that? Matthew chapter 11, and starting in verse 7. As John's disciples... We're leaving. That's John the Baptist's. Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. He means John the Baptist. This is Matthew eleven seven. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? 
If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send, and I was going to quote what I just read you. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. By the way, all four gospels quote that Old Testament verse about John the Baptist. Here it comes. Muhammad Ali, is he the greatest? Is Elvis the king? Who's the greatest man that ever lived up to the time that Jesus was born? And who could possibly be greater than the guy Jesus said was the greatest? Watch. Verse 11 of chapter 11. I tell you the truth. That's verily, verily, I say unto you in King James, it means, listen up, this is really important. Among those born of women, which is everybody except Adam and Eve, right? Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Does that shock anybody? He's saying John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's a prophet, so we need to listen. That's number one. He's saying of all the prophets, he's the greatest, greater than Isaiah, Elijah, Jeremiah, all of them. Pretty amazing, right? Has a very short ministry, ends up getting beheaded. We'll see in time. But the shocking thing in verse 11 isn't that John is the greatest. It's that whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Are you in the kingdom of heaven? Answer, yes. If you're a Christian, you're in the kingdom of heaven, right? So this verse says that as great as he was, you are greater, have a higher standing in heaven than he does. That's an astounding thing to me. So the question comes, why? He had an amazing ministry. He was the forerunner. He baptized Jesus. He preached and many thousands, maybe more, came to repentance. How would the least person in the kingdom be greater than him? John the Baptist did not have the benefit of seeing the death and resurrection of Jesus, nor did he fully understand the gospel. He died before any of that happened. So are you saying he didn't go to heaven? No, I'm saying, of course he's going to be in heaven. You'll see the camel hair suit and everything. And maybe he'll share a locust with you if you're a nice guy. But we, we are greater than him because John the Baptist, as great as he was, filled with the Holy Spirit from birth and before, was a sinner who needed a Savior. He wasn't sinless because then there'd be two, him and Jesus. He wasn't sinless, so he needed a Savior. But we have that Savior. We are in a greater position because our sins are all forgiven. Are John's forgiven? Yes. He looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. We look back to it. But that's an astounding thing. Not only is he the greatest, but whoever's least in the kingdom is greater than him. Now I want you to go to the Gospel of John. You say, boy, we're flipping around. I know we are. John chapter 1. Go with me there briefly. I want you to see something kind of, to me at least, fascinating. John chapter 1. 
right around verse 19, I think it is. John 1. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. Because there was a rumor going around. His ministry was so successful. And by the way, normally, if you're going to do a ministry like this, pick a street corner in Jerusalem where there's a bunch of people. He's out in the boonies in the desert, dressed strangely, eating a strange diet, we'll see, and his ministry just explodes because the Holy Spirit's moving in that part of the world. So are you the Christ? They asked, no. Then they asked, are you Elijah? Remember, because Elijah's going to come before the... If he is, he would know. And what does he say? I am not. Are you the prophet? In Greek, it really is, are you that prophet. You say, what does that mean? Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy predicted that there would, be, there would come a prophet like unto Moses who would lead the people again. That prophet is Jesus Christ. They ask him, are you that prophet? No. Well, then who are you? Verse 22, give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So here he comes. And the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. There it is again. Some Pharisees, why do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one. There's already, he's already on the earth. You don't know. He's the one, verse 27, who comes after me. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. I want you to understand that when someone was a teacher or a rabbi, they would have disciples who would learn from them. And those disciples were sort of acted like, acted like servants, not paid servants, servants. Go get me a sandwich and you go get me a, a cup of water. And they would just do it. But no rabbi would ever dare say to one of his disciples, take my sandals off, wash my feet. That was considered a job way below most people, only the bond servants, the slaves that were hot, that were bought and sold would do that filthy, dirty job. John says, he's so high above me, I'm not even worthy to be the guy that takes off his sandals. Go back to Matthew now. Great humility I wanted you to see in this prophet, John. John is six months older than his cousin, second cousin, Jesus. They are about 30 years old. Uh, when this is taking place. Uh, interestingly, he's six months older, and then John, who knows some about Jesus, says, he came before me. Even though he's six months older, he knows he's always existed. Kind of an amazing thing. Okay, we already talked about that. He's not Elijah, and in the Bible, there's no reincarnation. Uh, Hebrews 9 Verse 27 says, um, it's appointed unto each man to live and die once, and then the judgment. No reincarnation. Much better than reincarnation, resurrection in Christianity. Um, Luke 1.15 says about John the Baptist, he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll drink no wine or strong drink. John takes a Nazarite vow to be dedicated to the Lord, Never cut his hair, so his hair would be very long. He would look like a heavy metal guy if he was around today. He would drink no wine or alcohol, 
and just be dedicated to the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, Luke tells us. Um, where John is, is desert. And it's astounding that people came out to him. Where he was, there was a community called the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. -S -E -E I think that's how you spell it. You may say, who are they? They were a very strict scripture-only Jewish sect that separated from the rest of Judaism and went out and lived in that area. There's no evidence John was an Essene. What are they known for? They're the ones that carefully copied the text of the Bible that we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in the 1940s. The Dead Sea Scrolls are important in a cave. Somebody found them. They're important because they are a thousand roughly years older than the oldest copies we had of Old Testament books. So when they were found and it was discovered, oh, these are, these are a thousand years older than the best text we had, the skeptics couldn't wait because they thought, you watch how different Isaiah is, Jeremiah, Deuteronomy. It's going to be so different over a thousand years. Mind-blowingly, it's not. It's the same. The Jews were very careful copying the scriptures. So anyway, that's the Essenes. They're in that same area. Back to the text. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. All right. John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, and this is an encapsulation of his ministry. Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So there's three things there. First one is repent. Repentance, if I tell somebody repent, that does not mean be sorry for your sin. It means that, but it's a lot more. Because you can be sorry for your sin because you got caught. Repent means to be so sorry for your sin, first to recognize that it's sin and confess it as sin, and then be so sorry because you realize it's an affront, it's an offense to the God who loves you and created you, that you want to turn from that sin and not do it again. A re repentance is a U-turn on the road of life. But there has to be the awareness that there is sin. I got news for you. The word repent might be the most important word in the gospel. You say, well, no, Jesus, salvation, the cross, resurrection, grace, those are all important. But let me tell you this. The first word out of John the Baptist's mouth is repent. The first word Jesus speaks of the gospel in Matthew 4 and Mark 1 is repent. The first word in the ministry of the 12 disciples when Jesus is instructing them is repent. The first words out of Paul's mouth is the word, is that word, same word. Uh, Peter's first sermon in Acts 2.38, repent, repent, repent. It's important. The reason I'm hammering this home is because in Christian circles, we just like to get people saved. Just come on in. It's really easy. Just believe, bow your head and pray this prayer with me. Repeat after me. Okay, you're in. There has to be a recognition of your sin. And by the way, you can't know that innately. Meaning, 
you can get so used to sinning that you start to grade on a curve and go, well, mass murder, shooting up a school, that's sin. What I'm doing, I'm not really harming anybody. I'm just getting drunk or I'm sleeping around or I'm stealing at work and they can afford it. You start to grade on a curve. Repentance involves that recognition of sin, a confession of it, and then a turning away. The beautiful thing is God gives us his Holy Spirit so that you are enabled to turn away from what you never could. There's thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of stories of people who could not stop filling the blank, sinning, drinking, using drugs, stealing, killing, whatever, abusing children, uh, pornography, whatever sin it is, the Holy Spirit enables you to take they can take that away and make you a new creation. Pretty amazing. Repent. Change. That's what he's saying. Keep in mind his audience is almost entirely Jewish people. And I'm going to show you in a second that they think we don't need to repent. We're Jewish. We have it. We have the Old Testament. What do we need to repent of? But deep inside, there was great messianic or messiah expectation at this time. And they maybe the Holy Spirit was working on that crowd that they were starting to look inward and go, yeah, that is a sin that I'm doing that. I've been kind of uh, sweeping it under the rug. So he comes saying, repent. And the, the reason or the motivation is the kingdoms just about here. So you say, what kingdom is that? So you got to look at the word kingdom. If there's a kingdom, then what is there, first of all? A king. Can't have a kingdom without a king, right? Okay, a queen, I get it. But in this case, a king. The next thing you have to have is subjects, people under the king who submit to the king. You also have to have the ki a kingdom as a government where he rules. I want you to notice it's not a constitutional republic. It's not a democracy. His rules go. So whoever the king is, I hope he's a good guy, because if he's a jerk, I don't want to be in this kingdom. Turns out he's the greatest guy, right? God in human flesh. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is he saying this now? Because Jesus is there. I'm going to show you also a little later that John does not know at this point when he's preaching repentance, it's Jesus. He doesn't know till he baptizes him. He knows Jesus is somebody special, but he doesn't know. I'll show you till, he's, till he baptizes him. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or has come near. <clears throat> the other gospels, Mark and Luke, call it the kingdom of God. So like Bible scholars are, there's all kinds of essays written. There must be a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, and there isn't. It's the same thing. Well, then why use these words? Because Mark, Luke, and John are not writing primarily to a Jewish audience. Matthew is. If you know anything about Orthodox Jews, going back even 2,000 years, they really are reluctant to ever say the G word, God. You, I can show you Jewish websites where it says G, capital G, space D. They want, I don't even want to say his name for fear he might zap me. It's so holy. It's kind of a cool thing. So Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. He who dwells in heaven, it's the same thing. Just wanted to mention that. 
So that's why repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Just like a king is coming, clean up your yards, folks. Clean up your lives, folks, if you will. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of, verse 3, and we read that verse, prophet Isaiah, calling in the wilderness, and there he is in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Straighten out your life. In other words, if there's a curvy path with a bunch of bumps, it's harder for the Lord to get there. What are the bumps? The sin in my life, your life, her life, and her life, right? The more we can make those things straight and flat, the more we'll be able to receive him into our lives, both individually and collectively as Israel. He's coming to Israel first and then to the world. Repent. Um, if you think of repentance like this, I used this like three or four weeks ago, this analogy in a different context, but it's the same thing. If, I, if you live in New York and I call you up and I say, I need you to come to California, to Oakhurst, California immediately. And it's, I really need you here. You'd say, okay, I'll get on a plane. I'll be there in two days. Okay, great. I don't need to say, leave New York and come to California. Because you can't come to California unless you leave New York, right? You can't be in two places at once. In the same way, repentance is like that. Repentance is come to Jesus. Leave where you are. The sin, the selfishness, the self-centeredness, the self-rule of your life. Repentance is a U-turn where you leave where you are. You always leave something behind when you come to Jesus. Okay. John's clothes, verse 4, very stylish dresser, were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts, which is basically grasshopper. And we're going to serve those later, those of you that are here, and wild honey to sweeten it up. Okay, why? Why camel's hair? Okay, let me explain. Camel's hair was very uncomfortable rough, coarse, like worse than wearing a burlap sack that potatoes come in, where it would just be uncomfortable. Who wore camel's hair? Very, very, very poor people and a bunch of the prophets in the Old Testament, especially Elijah. He's coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Their ministries are very similar. Elijah was telling the Jews, you better repent, better get it together. Very bold the way he preached same with John the Baptist. He's wearing some unusual clothes to make people remember prophet. Um, in 2 Kings 1.8, you see Elijah dressed the same way. So uh, let's see. Yeah, Zechariah 13.4 talks about uh, that camel hair type stuff. Um, let's see. The locusts, grasshoppers, were not eaten the way you're picturing them, alive, just... <laughs> they were usually killed, ground up, and mixed with honey. Make like a paste kind of thing. Getting hungry? Um, okay, let's see. Um, before Jesus is born, before John the Baptist is born, Zacharias is told about his son. He will go before him meaning God, your son will go before God in the spirit and the power of Elijah. 
That's that verse we read from the Old Testament. Okay, verse 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Meaning, this guy's getting such a huge following, you're going to see in a few verses, it's so big, they're sending in the authorities to check it out. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the, the Supreme Court or the Senate of Israel is going to come and check this guy out. He's attracting big crowds and more respect than we're getting as the Pharisees. We need to go check this out. So his ministry is bearing tremendous fruit. You'll see also in a second, it is not a seeker-sensitive message. It's anything but. It's the truth brutally spoken, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking forth God's word, and those with hearts that are soft enough and have been prepared by God that are coming to hear him, bing, bells are going off. The guilt of their sin and the wanting to get right with God is coming together. But there's something very unusual we'll get to in a second. Verse 6, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Do you see that? Okay, remember, these are Jewish people. The rabbis had a saying. It's not scriptural, but their saying was that Abraham stands at the gates of hell to make sure no Jew ever enters. Meaning, you're Jewish, you're in. You go to heaven automatically. It's in our genes, our genealogy, our blood, our culture. We're Jewish, we're saved. Anything but the truth. It's untrue. Judaism at this time has really gotten... Uh, apostate. They've lost the heart of the law. They're going through the motions with sacrifices and washings, and but they're not really faithful. A lot of sin. So it's an amazing thing that he has pointed out their sin, and instead of them deserting him, the move of the Holy Spirit is they're coming and confessing their sins out loud, publicly. It's a shocking thing. Talk about a revival. Nowadays, if we were going to plan a revival, there would be people saying, we need to make sure it's air-conditioned, people are comfortable. No one's comfortable here, right? This wild man, if you've ever seen movies about Jesus's life, and I had an interesting discussion this week with a couple uh, in Texas about all the movies about Jesus, and they all get it wrong to some degree or another, right? There's some good in there, but they always take liberties. But if you've ever seen, anybody seen movies about Jesus where John the Baptist is a pretty normal guy? I never have, right? He's always kind of a ranting, almost wild-eyed lunatic, but he's anything but speaking the words of God. And people are hearing it. Their hearts are being changed. They're confessing their sins. Okay, here's the amazing thing. And they're being baptized by him in the Jordan River. You say, what's so amazing about that? We're going to see here that there are three types of baptism and a fourth that comes later. The reason this is shocking is in that day, imagine we're all Jewish. We go to the temple. We sacrifice Passover. We do all the things we're supposed to do. We read the scriptures. None of us ever would get baptized. 
ever. Do you know who baptism was for? A Gentile who wanted to become a Jew. Jeff here is a Gentile, and he's been coming to um, hear the scriptures read in the synagogue or in the temple, and he says, I believe it. I want to become a Jew. We would say to him, you see, because you're a Gentile, please don't take offense at this, but you're unclean. You're sinful. So you need to be baptized. The word means immersed or overwhelmed. It is not if you were raised this way in Lutheran or uh, Catholic church, forgive me, it's not sprinkling with water. It's not pouring with water. It's dunking, immersion. It's a picture of being washed. Later, it becomes a picture of, I have come to Jesus, and I want you to come and watch as I go under the water, picturing the old me dying, disappearing, and the new me coming up washed. That comes later. That, what John is doing, it might surprise you, is not Christian baptism. What did you say? It's not Christian baptism. Jesus hasn't died on the cross, so the death thing isn't there, the resurrection thing isn't there. This is a baptism of repentance of cleaning up your life because the king's coming, the kingdom's coming, you better be ready. They're getting baptized. They're in a sense admitting, a Jew admitting, not only am I a sinner and I need to confess my sins, I'm as unclean as a Gentile. Dunk me. Publicly. It's a shocking thing. It shows you how powerful, what a powerful speaker, preacher this guy was, because of the Holy Spirit. So they're getting immersed. Um, it looks forward to the Holy Spirit coming and the salvation Jesus brings, but it's not Christian baptism. Some make the analogy, how many know of you what how many of you know what circumcision is? In the Old Testament, the symbolic rite, R-I-T-E, that was performed only on the boys or Jewish men, if they converted her later, was circumcision, the cutting of the male foreskin. Not for women, just for men. Baptism is for everybody, men and women. This isn't just men, this is men and women. Circumcision didn't save you if you were a Jew. Baptism doesn't save you if you're a Christian, although it's commanded that we be baptized when we've come to faith. There are some um, so-called denominations that baptize babies. Nice idea. You can dedicate a baby to the Lord. You can pray over a baby. But in the Bible, there is only one kind of Christian baptism. This is after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and his ascension. And that is believer's baptism. And you can't tell me the baby believes. She may someday. You can dedicate her to the Lord. You can pray, all that. The baptism of babies is not scriptural. When someone understands the gospel, seven years old, five years old, 14, 58, 75, whatever, you can baptize them. Okay. If, if by the way, you were baptized as a child and you think, I'm not doing that again, you might think about. My wife and I got baptized when we were in our 20s, which was like eight years ago. Anyway, um, Keep in mind one other thing. Judaism has had the silent 
treatment from God for 400 years. In the Old Testament, this prophet comes, a little while goes by, there's another prophet. This guy's preaching, then Jeremiah, and then 400 years, no prophets. God's not happy with Israel. That's why they're under the, the, the yoke of the Roman Empire. 400 years, and here comes the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, to, to preach the coming of the Lord Jesus. A Jew getting baptized is admitting, I'm as far away from God as a Gentile. The Holy Spirit is moving in a huge way here. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Let's keep rolling, shall we? But, verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers. There's no way to read this, by the way, with a gentle, kind, you brood of vipers. It's, it's, I think he screamed it. What do you mean vipers? What's a brood? Family. What's a viper? Snake. You mean like Satan? Like evil? Yes. He's calling them a bunch of snakes. Whew. We know from Luke's gospel, Matthew doesn't say it this way, he says this to everybody, not just the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but maybe especially to them, and that's why Matthew concentrates it here, because they're going to be Jesus' biggest enemy besides Satan. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Is there a coming wrath? Well, yes. In an ultimate sense, it's at the second coming and the final judgment of the Lord Jesus. It's been a couple thousand years since he said this, roughly, right? But for Israel, who was about to receive their Messiah, watch the miracles, hear the wisdom, see the resurrection, and understand what had happened, and yet say, no thanks, we don't want this man as our Messiah, for them, judgment is coming in 40 years, in 70 AD, roughly 40 years, when the Romans come, burn the city down, kill half a million Jews, burn the temple, and take it apart stone by stone. That's a judgment on them. That's the coming wrath that's immediate for them. The coming wrath, big scale, is the judgment at the end of the world. Who warned you to wrath, uh, to, to flee the coming wrath? Produce, verse 8, fruit in keeping with repentance. There we learn something else about repentance. There's fruit associated with it. The thing about fruit is it's visible. You can see it. Harold over here used to be an alcoholic. He would come to church smelling like gin. He doesn't anymore. And he's leading others to Christ and bringing in people. He's changed. He's, you, you turned right? He's repented. So produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You could think of the fruit of the spirit, um, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, you know, all that. Um, real repentance is not just here. I'm sorry for what I did. Not just here in the heart. It's here in the life. You see a change. If you've come to Jesus, 
and you're still struggling with the same sins you were two years ago, five years ago, nine months ago, 20 years ago, something's wrong. You're not growing. Um, let's see. Okay, so he's really going to read them the riot act, but he's really reading the riot act to them because of the leaders. It's for all of Israel. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 9, and do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Meaning, we're Jewish. We're saved automatically. We don't need this baptism thing. We're not sinners like you're saying we are. Then he says in verse 10, the axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What's the context? Judgment. It's a picture of a woodman that comes around to trees in an in a orchard, let's say, at a farm, producing uh, cherries, I almost said grapes, producing cherries, 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 nothing. Sickly tree, not producing anything, chop it down. Meaning what? Death, judgment, burned up. Useless to God. That's what he's telling them. That's their state right now. The axe is already at the root of the trees. The king is about to come. It's about to happen. The trees that don't produce good fruit are going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Ultimately, judgment, wrath, which we talked about. What's the fire? Hell. Eternal judgment outside of the presence of God and all things holy. It's time to take our two-minute break right now and stretch our bones and ligaments. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's very important. Those of you on Zoom, I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Be right back. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We are in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, talking about John the Baptist baptizing um, Jews that need to repent to prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus. There is no statistic on this anywhere, but I can't help but wonder how many of the people or what percentage of the people that came to John confessed their sins grieving over them, got baptized by him. How many of them, don't you wonder, when Jesus started preaching and doing miracles, how many of them became believers? A quarter, a half, most, all, none? I don't know. But I would think, having been prepared in their hearts with the confession and the baptism, I would think God has prepared their hearts for when they hear Jesus preach and they hear John say, eventually, Gospel of John, I think it is, uh, John the Baptist says, remember about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is so humble. He says, he, pointing to Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. Well, you say, that's good. Good for John. Listen, you and I need to say that. In my life, he, Jesus, must increase. His control of my life, his you know, outward appearance in my life should increase as I mature in the faith. And I, the old me, you should see less and less of that person. Anyway, um, hopefully you enjoyed the grasshoppers that we had back there uh, earlier. Okay. Uh, don't think you can say to yourselves, verse nine, we have Abraham as I as our father. That's what they're saying in terms of we don't need to repent. Look what he says right after that in verse 9. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. 
Okay, now this is a great rebuke. I want you to think about it. What are they saying? They're saying we are the chosen race. We're Jews. We're in automatically. We, to God, as Jews, have tremendous value. Remember that word, okay? Okay, in that culture, name something that would have no value. Stones, right? Just on the side of the road in the wilderness. He's saying, listen, that whole Abraham thing, that's great. You have a greater responsibility because you've had the scriptures all these years and you don't believe them. So that doesn't have any value in and of itself. It's about faith. Abraham, when you read the Old Testament, you know what it keeps saying? Abraham heard and believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, rightness with God. Because he heard and he believed. You people aren't doing that. That's what he's saying. And then the ultimate cut is... God can make children of Abraham out of something as horrible and worthless as stones. Well, what, what does that mean? Ladies and stones, it means us. Gentiles. Because they're Jews. A Gentile's a non-Jew. He's saying God can make something that looks very uh, worthless to you, Gentiles, they look down their noses at them, into children of Abraham. I got news for you. I'm going to show you some scriptures right now, very quickly, that show you that you are a child of Abraham. You go, no, no, I'm not Jewish. I know you're not. Are you a Christian? You believe in the Lord Jesus? Did you hear the gospel and believe it? Okay, watch. Children of Abraham. First, I want you to turn to, um, do we want to go to Galatians first? Yeah, I think we do. So from here, go to the right to those... um, past the four Gospels, Acts and Romans, the two Corinthian books, and go to the book of Galatians. The question is, what verse are we looking for, Joe? There it is, chapter 3. By the way, the whole book of Galatians, the theme is one thing. It's almost the same as Abraham. I'm sorry, almost the same as Hebrews, which in these books, the writer We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but we know Paul wrote Galatians. The writer is saying to Jews, stop being Jews, just be completed Jews or Christians. To be a true son of Abraham, you believe God, and God came in human flesh. That's who you need to believe. Okay, Galatians chapter 3, start in verse 6. Galatians 3, 6, consider Abraham, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe, that's you, are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, the stones, not Mick Jagger, the stones, by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham when he told Abraham, The Jewish nation will be, no, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now skip the same chapter, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Did you hear that? I'm not saying you're Jewish. I'm saying you're a son or daughter of Abraham, and so am I, because we heard the gospel and we, we believe it right? 
Okay, one other place to look really quickly, and then we'll move on. Now go to Romans. Go back a few books, maybe 15 pages. Romans chapter 4, and then we'll get back to Matthew, I promise. Romans 4 and verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. Romans 4, 16. The promise comes by faith so that it may be may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Oh, you mean Jews? Nope. Not only to those who are of the law, that's the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. Father of many nations, it goes on. He gives life to the dead. So we're all, in a sense, children of Abraham because we believe. It's wonderful. We're grafted in. It doesn't come through um, genealogy. In the same way, if your parents were Christian, it doesn't automatically mean you are a Christian. It's been said God has no grandchildren. You have to come to God. I have to come to God individually, um, as do my kids, my grandkids, whatever. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, we're going to come back to these verses. I'm back in Matthew 3. Um, yeah, um, 10 and what have you, but let's keep rolling. Verse 11, John talking. He's going to explain his baptism. I baptize you with water for repentance. Notice, not doesn't say salvation. Repentance, turning away from sin, cleaning up your life, preparing for the king. But after me comes one, that's Jesus, who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's three baptisms right there. Did you see it? I baptize you with water for repentance. That's John's baptism. Um, if you got baptized by John 2,000 years ago, you weren't automatically saved, but you did repent of your sins, your heart was prepared. If you heard the gospel, you might get saved, okay? Then he talks about the one coming after him, which is Jesus, who will baptize two different ways, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay, what's going on here? Okay, baptism, remember, means immersion to overwhelm right? So if you baptize somebody with the Holy Spirit, you're not sprinkling them with a little Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit coming inside someone's life and indwelling them forever. That's what happened. The Bible says the moment you and I believed that the Holy Spirit took up residence inside of our hearts, our lives, our bodies, if you will. And the Bible also teaches that before you and I believed, the Holy Spirit was drawing you to Jesus. And you can resist for a while, but eventually you come to Christ. He, Jesus Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You say, why didn't God think of this before? Why didn't Elijah baptize people with the Holy Spirit or Moses or David or Abraham or anybody else? Here's the reason. The Holy Spirit is God, and God cannot live inside of you until we get that sin problem solved. Well, I'm going to do my best. Good luck on that. Well, then what does it take? It takes a Savior. 
It takes the Lord Jesus dying for your sins and by faith and rising from the dead. And by faith, we believing in that, our sins are now forgiven. The house, if my body's a house, it's all cleaned up now. Now the Holy Spirit says, I'll live there now. That's why Elijah couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. David, Jeremiah, whoever you want, or David, Jeremiah, for that matter. Um, so he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. In a visual way, he does it in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, right? Suddenly, the Holy Spirit comes with tremendous power. We'll talk more about that later uh, in a future night. I baptize you with water for repentance, just preparing. But there's somebody coming that's way more important, way more powerful. I'm not even worthy, worthy to carry your sandals. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You say, okay, now what's that? Okay, there's two schools of thought. The vast majority of scholars believe one thing, and there's a minority of scholars that think the fire, I'll just tell you, I think this is wrong. They think the fire is, being baptized with fire, is Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, little tongues of fire. Remember that? They weren't baptized in fire. They were tongues of fire. True. The majority of scholars, I mean... 95, 98, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's high. Believe that, the, that, the, that Jesus, the Messiah, will baptize everyone, everyone, one of two ways. With the Holy Spirit, believers, or with fire, unbelievers. So fire isn't good. No. It's judgment. Let me show you. Go back to verse... Uh, 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit, who's that? Unbelievers. Will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment. Verse 11, same thing. Look at verse 12, and, and then we'll come back to 11. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat, that's the believers, into the barn, that's good, and burning up the chaff, that's the unusable husk of the wheat that you can't eat, it's not nourishing, it's a waste. With what? Unquenchable fire. What's that? Judgment. So in context, and by the way, this is a great lesson if you remember nothing else that you hear tonight, remember this. The way you can decide or know what a Bible verse means is by the context, number one. Don't pluck things out of context. In context, what's he talking about? The axes at the tree, judgment. The, the trees that don't bear fruit are going to be cut down and burned, judgment. Okay, what's a winnowing fork? So you understand that. See that in verse 12? A winnowing fork is almost like a rake or sometimes called even like a shovel, okay? Wheat would be just harvested all together. Among the wheat that you harvest is the grain, which is heavier. That's what you want to make cream of wheat and other stuff, bread, whatever. Okay, but there's also the husk and weeds and all kinds of other stuff that's light and no good. They would wait till late in the day when the wind would come up and they would get a bunch of the wheat and throw it up in the air with a winnowing fork or a winnowing, um, there's another fan. Some translations have verse 12. His winnowing forks in his hand, meaning what? He's about to do some separating of the wheat and the chaff. 
The chaff is a waste. The wheat is good. The wheat is believers. The chaff is unbelievers who have wasted their life. They would throw up in the air all that wheat. The chaff up in the air is light and just would get blown away to where Ken's sitting or Tom or uh, Michelle or anybody way back there. <sighs> Blows away. The wheat is heavier. It would fall down. Okay. Interestingly, they'd gather both. You'd think, just leave the chaff. No, they would sweep it up and burn it. Common practice in a, in a farm. And the wheat, the good stuff is still here. Sweep that up. That's the good stuff. This is a separation, much as the rapture, the second coming, is a separation, isn't it? The, the um, sheep and the goats, that's a separation, right? Two different sets of people, the wheat and the chaff. Okay, so what's the context of verse 12? Judgment, unquenchable fire. Therefore, most scholars believe Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, believers, and with fire, unbelievers. Immerse them in fire. For how long? Forever. That's what hell is. Doesn't make me happy to say that, but it's bib totally biblical and true. So, this message is not seeker friendly as i said it's seems a little harsh doesn't it and somebody might be thinking i got to advise john to tone it down dude you're not going to get any followers come on there's twenty thousand people listening to him today getting baptized confessing tears on their i'm so sorry for what i've done god forgive me i baptize you you know he's baptizing him cleansing um looking at notes john the way he's dressed, the way he's living, he's not worldly, is he? Not at all. Could you take John the Baptist aside and go offer him cash for something? He would go, what do I want that for, right? I'd like you to stop your ministry. I'm willing to give you $100,000 to stop. He'd go, get away with your money, right? How about a brand new camel? to ride a horse, chocolate-covered locusts. He's not worldly. What's the point? The point is a true revival will happen when people are filled with the Holy Spirit and tell it like it is. Listen, what is the gospel? The gospel starts with unbelievably bad news. You are a sinner. And you are go on your way to hell if you don't turn, repent, change your life. But the problem is you can't change unless God, you allow God to come in your life by faith and let him change you from the inside out. Listen, the gospel is offensive. We don't have to make it more offensive by being jerks about it. But we also don't want to water it down and go, just pray this with me. Jesus, I believe in you. Amen. You're a Christian now. Wait, wait, wait. Have we dealt with the guy's sin? Is he grieving over it and ready, or gal, ready to repent? Ready to let God change him from the inside out? And the beautiful thing is, folks, God is patient. He was so patient with me and did not expect me. You got 30 days to change, Joe, or that's it. I'm pulling the plug. Man, it took years for him to, for me to let him clean up my life. He's still doing it. I'm, I'm 98 years old. I know I look pretty good for 98. But anyway, um, you want a revival? 
Let somebody filled with the Holy Spirit tell the truth. Repentance, humility, confession. It's not seeker-sensitive. God may accept you the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. Wants to change you from the inside out, all for your good and for his glory. Let's keep reading. First, are we at 13 now? I think we are. Verse 13. Then Jesus, there's been a huge gap since little baby Jesus and the Magi came and they went to Egypt and he, he was a carpenter. Before that, he was a young boy. We don't know much about those years. Here he comes. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, shockingly, to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, verse 14, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? It's like, it's like that's, I believe that's the way it's said. You? You want me, who is nothing, to baptize you, who is sinless? John senses by the Holy Spirit, this person has no sin, has nothing to confess, has nothing to repent of, that he's holy. Maybe God, the Holy Spirit, is revealing to John at that moment, this is the guy. You want me to baptize you? You could cleanse me, is what he's saying. It's beautiful, humility, right? Because John, if he's got a big ego, could say, watch this, folks. I'm going to baptize Jesus. No one else. He didn't pick anyone else. He chose me to baptize him. He doesn't do that. Total humility. From 30 years of obscurity, Jesus comes on the scene. They're both about 30 years old. A fourth century historian, Eusebius, writes, Jesus was baptized in his 30th year. So he's about 30 years old. He's got about three years to live. John has less than a year at this point. So he says, John's trying to talk him out of it, which is kind of silly. You ever try to talk God out of something? Let me tell you what would be better. No offense, God, but I think I've got this thing wired. No, Jesus, you shouldn't baptize. I shouldn't baptize you. Jesus replied, let it be so now, verse 15. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John, reluctantly probably, consented. Okay, so what's going on here? You said earlier, Joe, Jesus was, is the sinless one. He never sinned. Yes. Hebrews and elsewhere, it says Jesus was tempted, listen, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. You got it? It's not like he never had temptation. No wonder he never sinned. God shielded him. and No, no, he was tempted in every possible way. We're about to see it in chapter 4. In the worst possible way, by Satan himself, he never, ever sinned. Okay, so wait, so then why get baptized? It's a baptism of repentance. He has nothing to repent of. It's a little silly. Or is it? What's Jesus doing on planet Earth? Is he there to just do some miracles and teach some wisdom and blow out of there? He's coming as the representative of all mankind. Just as Adam was the representative of all mankind, and the reason that there's crime, and you have to lock your doors, and sickness, and disease, and injuries, and death in this world, all goes back to Adam, who was the representative of 
the world, and he blew it. The second Adam, he's called, Jesus is in the Bible, has showed up. And in order to represent mankind, he's got to check all the boxes. Tempted in all things, check. Wait, is he God? Yes. Well, he's got to have a human birth. Okay, virgin birth. Check, Mary. Okay, he's got to be one of us. What, is he born to an aristocratic, wealthy Bill Gates family? No, no, it's a poor family. Check. He's got to work and be able to be injured and his carpenter. Check. He's got to be a representative. I'm willing to be baptized. It's total humility to fulfill all righteousness. Now, the question is, what, do you, what does he mean by that? It's nowhere in the Old Testament that says, and the Messiah shall be baptized. It doesn't say that. But it does say that the Messiah will submit to the will of God in humility. And that there's Jesus. Go ahead, do it. And so John kind of reluctantly, like, doesn't even want to touch him, right? He, he said, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelace, let alone baptize you. Are you sure? Yes, do it. He's very reluctant. Then John consented. So I want you to picture the scene. I don't know whether it's day or morning or night or afternoon or the sun setting, but you're there and it was you're in line to get baptized and here comes this guy. Nobody knows who he is. Most people don't anyway. This is before any of the disciples. And verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting or landing and remaining on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Wow. Did you catch all that that happened just when Jesus submitted to the baptism so that he could fully relate to mankind? He does what all the others are doing. So first of all, as soon as he was baptized, verse 16 has the idea in the Greek that this stuff just happens, boom, boom, boom. It's not over a period of the next 30 minutes or two hours or five days, boom, boom, boom. This is one of the places the first one in Matthew, where the Trinity is clearly everybody's present. Did you see it? Who gets baptized? Jesus, second person of the Trinity. Who speaks from heaven? God the Father, first person of the Trinity. Who descends in the form of a dove? Third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. You see it? Pretty amazing. In the Bible, whenever anything big happens, it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The Father raised Jesus from the dead. It says so in the Bible. But in Romans, it says the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Okay, so the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Who raised Jesus from the dead? John chapter 2. Jesus says, destroy this temple body, and in three days, I will raise it up. Oh, contradiction. No, no. God raised Jesus from the dead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Who made the word? World, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Who's involved in the baptism of Jesus? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, um, we got a lot to say about this before we close. So, number one, he comes up out of the water, indicating what? 
wasn't a sprinkling, wasn't a pouring. He comes up out of, he disappeared. Is he still under there? Maybe John held him down for a few extra minutes. At that moment, first of all, heaven was opened. What does that mean? If you think of heaven as the spiritual dimension, I'm not going to sell this too hard because I'm not sure this is right, but that's how I see it. Heaven is another dimension all around us and above us, and we with human eyes can't see it. The angels can see it. The angels, by the way, there's angels here right now. We can't see them. We don't have that kind of dimensional view. Somehow heaven is opened, okay? Indicate, this happens occasionally in the Old Testament. It happens when, believe it or not, in Acts, when Stephen is being killed, stoned to death. He sees heaven open. This is after the resurrection. And he says, I see heaven open. And Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. Amazing. When heaven is opened in the Old Testament, it's an indication for whomever this is happening, there's going to be communication between heaven and earth, through that dimension and this one, between God and this person, meaning Jesus. That's the first thing. Heaven's opened. It doesn't say it, but if you're making a movie, you'd have the, you know, the angels, that kind of choir thing going on. As soon as he's baptized, heaven's open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting or remaining on him. Who's the he? Jesus. Did anyone else see it? Or did we just have one witness? Yes. Elsewhere we find out John saw it as well and testifies to it as well. So Jesus gets baptized and all these things start happening, right? John was a little leery and didn't want to do it. Um, so um, Acts chapter 7, verse 56, Stephen uh, sees, gets a vision, somebody getting a revelation. The Holy Spirit descends and lands on him and remains on him. Question. Is this the first time in 30 years? No. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, right? With Mary. So he had the Holy Spirit before. Yes. So what is this? It's a visual demonstration that God is going to be with this guy. It's an empowering for works of service in a special way. Just as Jesus breathes on the disciples in the Gospel of John and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and yet nothing happens. They're still going fishing after that and stuff. But in Acts chapter 2, man, he comes in power and chicken little Peter suddenly preaches a sermon that blows people's minds and thousands come to Jesus. Remember in Acts chapter 2. Okay, so uh, remember he's going to be the mouthpiece of God. He's God with us. Um, Psalm 45, 7, God predicts that he will, God will put his spirit on his servant. This is when it happens. Psalm 45, 7. Um, we talked about that. There's an analogy here I don't want you to miss because it's going to come up in chapter 4 too, and I lied. We probably won't get to chapter 4 or just barely. Israel, Israel uh, went through the water of the Jordan right? And like, I'm sorry, Jesus goes through the water of the Jordan. Israel goes through the Red Sea. After Israel goes through the Red Sea, what's the next thing? 
wilderness. How long? 40 years. How long is Jesus in the wilderness fasting in chapter 4? 40 days. How long does it rain for Noah with the ark and all that? 40 days and 40 nights. 40, 40, 40. It's a number in the Bible for sin being dealt with and testing and judgment. We'll talk about that more when we get to the next chapter. I just wanted to do it before I forgot it. So um, this is a new beginning for Jesus. He has not done any miracles yet, hasn't gotten any disciples, hasn't preached any great sermons. This is the start. It's a, 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 a he's leaving New York to come to Oakhurst. What do you mean? He's going to leave behind that. I don't think he's going to do carpentry work anymore. Uh, his old friends might not be his friends anymore. It's going to be a whole new life for him now. After 400 years of silence, not only is John the Baptist speaking, but God shows up in human flesh. Pretty amazing thing. Um, the same Holy Spirit that empowers Jesus for works of service, that descends in the form of a dove, is the same Holy Spirit you have living inside of you. Well, then why do I struggle so much? And why is my life so messed up? And listen, he's a gentleman. To the extent that you and I submit to the Holy Spirit and let him change us and obey when we hear him speaking, amazing things will happen. To the extent that we resist, fight him, sin, disobey, no wonder our lives are a mess, right? But the point is, it's the same Holy Spirit. We already talked about that and that. I'm just checking my notes here. Um, in the form of a dove, a picture of beauty, freedom, peace, purity. Doves were used in for very poor people in sin offerings in Israel. Maybe a hint of the death of Jesus as a sacrifice, a hint at it, maybe. John 1, 32 to 34 explains that John the Baptist saw it and understood it. Um, in fact, is that where he says it? Um, let's look at God's words here before we move on. Um, so there's the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, God speaks from heaven. This is my son. You got to understand if you are the son of a human, that makes you a human. There's no way you could be a horse if you're the son of a human. Okay, or a chicken. Even if you identify as a chicken, you're not a chicken. If he's the son of God, that makes him God. Who says so? God himself. This is my beloved son, my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. No wonder he's submitted to the baptism. He's never sinned. He's obeying me completely. But before, in the very few little time we have left, we're going to flip some pages. Go to Psalm chapter 2. So roughly the middle of the Bible, I want you to see something. We're going to talk about Jesus being the Son of God. Psalm 2, there it is. Fascinating psalm, by the way. I encourage you to read it uh, tonight when you go home and ask yourself, which member of the Trinity is speaking? Because they all speak in Psalm 2. Holy Spirit, Jesus, God the Father. See if you can figure it out. That's not what we're going to look at now, though. Psalm 2, look at verse 7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. 
He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So who's that talking? Got to be Jesus. He said to me, you are my, you are my son, right? He's talking about the father saying it to him. Um, the idea of the son of God. Okay, now skip down to verse 12, same Psalm. Interesting verse, Psalm, verse 12, Psalm 2. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You want to go to heaven? I just have my own relationship with God in my own way. Kiss the son. It's the only way to get there. There's no other name given among men. There's no other savior. The son of God. Um, let's see. Do we want to go there now? No. We'll, oh, let's go to Proverbs 30 and then we'll quit. I thought you said we were going to quit. I know I lied. Proverbs 30. So next book to the right from Psalms. I'm going to do this as fast as I can. It's Proverbs 30. What verse is it, Joe? Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands? Who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? He's talking about God. Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and the name of his son? Tell me if you know. Wow. Remember, this is Jewish scriptures hinting that God's got a son that's going to be the one you're going to have to deal with. Pretty amazing. We're out of time. I didn't get to chapter four. I'm bummed, but you'll have to come back next week. Let's pray, shall we? And we'll get out of here. Father, thank you for your word. There's so much here, God. Humility, repentance, um, the washing away of sin. We see the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And to the extent that we submit to the Holy Spirit, God, use us for your glory. May we hear his voice when he speaks to us and is trying to alert us to things. May we be in your word constantly to learn from him as he reveals you and your son Jesus and himself. God, thank you for our Savior whose ministry is about to begin. But before it does, he must be tested and tempted. And that's what chapter four is all about, Father, that you wrote. Thank you for the truths here. Thank you that Jesus was willing to come to the earth and live the perfect life we should have lived, to die the horrible death I deserved, and then to offer all of us his salvation. Thank you that we are sons and daughters of Abraham, not by birth, but by faith. And the faith is a gift from you. Bless these truths. May they change the way we live. And thank you for each one here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Very important. And those of you on Zoom, God bless you. We'll see you next time. Thank you.